Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. We'll be returning to our study in Acts. We'll be in chapter 9 here today. We'll start in verse 1, and if you would, just agree with me in prayer as we continue to prepare our hearts for the word here this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks here this morning for this day which you have given us, that you have blessed us with. May the reality of what we have here today be so alive in our hearts and in our minds that we would be mindful here this morning of the blessings that we enjoy. Foundationally, that we have a God in heaven who cares so much about us that you meet us right where we are, that you've given us your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross to be raised again such that we could know forgiveness, that we could have eternal life. May that knowledge today be our joy, may be our strength. Yet, Lord, beyond that, you seek to meet us right where we are, to encourage us, to bless us. You've given us the Word of God that we can learn from here today such that we could grow in our knowledge of you, to have a more intimate relationship with you. Oh, Father, I pray that all the cares of the world today, the challenges that we've had this week, the distractions, that we could set them aside to focus on you, to learn from you, to hear from you. And may that be the case here this morning, that through the power of the Spirit, Lord, speak to us individually and corporately, that when we walk out of these doors, we would not be the same, Lord, but different, changed, more excited, more passionate in our pursuit of you, your word, and what you would have for us here in this life. As we study today of, of the account of Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, as we see this radical encounter that he had with you on the road to Damascus, Lord, may it remind us of the encounters we've had with you, of perhaps that time when we surrendered our lives to you and we gave our lives to you. Perhaps if you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that today would be that day that the Holy Spirit would draw you into repentance that you would be so moved by what you hear in the testimony of Saul, that we would all today, no matter where we're at in our walk with you, that we would continually today surrender, just as Saul surrendered, that we would count the cost of following you, but that we would determine in our hearts that the cost of following you is so greater than not following you, Lord, than living without you, than pursuing Life in this world as opposed to life in Jesus Christ. Do that work here today, Lord. Speak to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We read, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so here now we're introduced to Saul once again. Remember when we last heard of Saul back in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it read, Now Saul was consenting to his death. This is back in chapter 8. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And so 
This is when we were earlier introduced to Saul and we learned of a man who was breathing threats amongst the church, that he was wreaking havoc on the church. He was the one, Saul, who had consented to the death of Stephen. And I have no doubt that Paul, or Saul, as he was at this time, was impacted, that he was touched by Stephen's death as he saw the look of peace on Stephen's face as he died, as he witnessed Stephen looking to heaven, speaking of the Son of Man, this Jesus who was being proclaimed over and over by so many. Yet Saul at this time, rather than accepting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ or pursuing answers, so touched by what he was hearing, trying to figure it out, trying to understand it better, he sought instead to shut it down, to shut down the Christian faith, to cut it off. The word says that he made havoc of the church, that he sought to destroy it. Well translated, it reads that he was a beast who was ripping people to shreds, devouring them. And he was indiscriminate in his persecution. As we read, whether man or woman, if you were a Christian, you would face certain death or imprisonment, one or the other. Saul is one of arguably the most damaging forces of the Christian faith in the church at this time. Perhaps even, quite frankly, percentage-wise in all of history. He may be the source of the greatest persecution that the church has ever really faced in terms of its size at that particular time. And of course, we know now and, and can benefit from and what we'll read today, the knowledge of what happens in Saul's life as he becomes the Apostle Paul, that this, this man who was so damaging to the church also became the most influential in supporting it and advocating for it. But this was a man who, despite what he heard, despite what he saw, was so ingrained in what he believed in the legalism that was his faith that he sought to silence any conviction that was coming into his life and into his heart. And, and while it's extreme what we see here with Saul, I think we can probably all relate in some way, shape, or form to those times when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit and rather than accepting it and looking to the Lord to, to do more and to, and to show us and to teach us, we often try to push it away, to resist what it is that God is doing in our lives. But here, Saul and his efforts to destroy the church we read, we know more. That's the interesting thing here about Saul is that as the Apostle Paul, he pens so many letters, the Holy Spirit used him inspired to give us so much of the New Testament that as we go through the various books, we can start to put together the pieces of his life and we can learn more about what was happening and when it was happening and how it happened. And we know in, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, For you, this is Paul writing at the time, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul never forgot the events of his former life. He never forgot what it was that he attempted to do. In fact, I believe that it probably motivated him moved him on a regular basis. It challenged him to continue to pursue the Lord and to pursue the work that he had called him to. But this was a unique individual. Saul, in his unique role, is, is what was called a Hellenist Jew. He was a Jew. He was raised by Hebrew 
parents. He was a Roman citizen. And where he lived, Saul of Tarsus, though, was also very much influenced by the Greek culture as well. Rome was dominant in the land from an authority perspective, from a governmental perspective, but Greek and, and, and Greece in terms of its culture and the arts and the social impact was very influential. And so Paul was this, and we'll learn here later on, and no surprise to us, but God had a specific plan for him. This was an individual whom he had his hands on, who he knew, God knew what he could do through this individual if he was surrendered to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior because he played such a unique role. He had unique skill sets. He had such an incredible perspective that he, in fact, could be that individual that could go forth into all the world and preach the gospel. But he was stubborn, to say the least. That's to put it lightly. At this point, such hatred was in his heart. And so as we continue to understand here what happens to Saul, I want to make sure we understand that this is no small account. This is no light situation here. This is significant what happens to this man, especially in light of who he is and what he's doing and how he's living his life. And so here, he seeks out letters from the high priest, most likely Caiaphas at this time, such that he can, under their direction under their authority, that he can take the persecution of the churches to Damascus at this point. He wants to go forth, and he essentially has letters that say, you can go and you can do whatever you want to the Christians. And the fact that he's going to Damascus here, we know that Damascus is about a six-day journey from Jerusalem. And the cool thing about this now that we can understand and gather from this is that the word is spreading. The fact that Paul now needs to go to Damascus tells us that there must be some established church that exists there for him to travel six days and not just to address some rumblings of Christianity that's there, but rather to to deal with those who, who are considered of the way. You see, this was a term that was used to describe Christianity early on. Christianity wasn't a term that was really used until later on. And here we'll have in in the book of Acts five times they'll refer to Christianity as the way. And I love that because it speaks to the fact that it's not just a simple belief, but rather it is a way of life. And there are Christians now who are in Damascus. The word is spreading. The gospel has gone forth, and there are people who are living sold out for Jesus Christ. And so Paul gets letters such that he can go there, and he can destroy the church that exists there. But the beautiful thing about it is what Paul has in his mind as he goes to Damascus. What he thinks is going to happen as he enters in is derailed on the road on his way there. Saul was a murderer. He was a zealot. He was obsessed with his vision, work that he considered of God, ordained by God, as he sought to protect the Jewish faith from this blaspheming false prophet. Saul was not some atheist who was making fun of the Christian faith and trying to remove prayer from schools, for example. And it's not that I think any of those individuals are harmless by any means, But I think oftentimes today, we can struggle to identify someone in our culture who parallels that of Saul and elicits the the same emotional response within us that would have been felt by Christians of the day. He was an evil man. And it's important to understand that as we learn what happens here to Saul and what it means for the Christians at this time, that this was no light matter. And so Saul, in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. 
Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here Saul on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus now has an encounter that is very unique. Here it says that a light shone around him from heaven and he fell to the ground and he hears an audible voice. And based on later verses, many believe that he also saw the glorified Jesus, that those that were around him did not, but that he had a unique encounter. And Jesus, as we learn shortly, is the one who is speaking, and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, rarely does an individual have such an encounter. And this stops Saul in his tracks. doesn't just stop him, it says that he fell. He fell to the ground. Now, many people suggest that he was on an animal at this point and that he just fell right off of it, fell off the horse, the donkey, whatever he was on, hits the ground. And we don't know that. We don't have any evidence to suggest that. But what we do know is he's traveling with other people and all of a sudden this light shone around him and it drops him to the ground. Now, this would be something that was very uh, interesting to see. This would have caught everyone off guard. There would likely be panic and no doubt on Saul's part as well as all of a sudden he's having this incredible experience And Jesus here says to him, Saul, Saul. And this is important, the fact that I believe that Jesus uses his name two times because it sort of changes the way in which he's addressing him. If we saw him use his name just once, just as Saul, you could infer that perhaps he was yelling at him, that there was this sudden, Saul! You know, and that there's this big booming voice that comes from heaven. But rather, when we see Jesus communicate, and when he does, this second time of stating his name almost softens the tone a little bit, almost gives us more of an understanding of the heart at this particular time as he says, Saul, Saul, getting his attention, reinforcing it one more time. In case you didn't hear your name the first time, I'm saying it again. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Now, notice here that Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the Christians? No, he says, me. He says, me. You're coming, Saul, against the very Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I love this because I think it's a reminder to all of us that when we are dealing with the Word of God, the convictions in our life that come through the Spirit, the church, the people in the church, how we handle one another, It's important for us to remember who we are, who we belong to, who this church belongs to. Think about that. Think about your relationships, whether people you may dislike or you treat poorly or or you lust after or you pursue inappropriate relationships with, what have you. You're not just dealing with them as they are members of the body, members of one body that belongs to Jesus Christ. And here it was an incredibly important statement to Saul for him to understand, you're not just persecuting the church, you're coming against me, Jesus Christ. And this had to have gotten a hold now of Saul's heart. Saul was not coming against the church, he was coming against Jesus Christ. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Saul will ask two questions in this encounter. And they're great questions. The first question he'll ask is, Who are you, Lord? Now when you have a spiritual encounter, when the Spirit draws you to repentance... When you get saved, 
the first thing you should seek to understand is, who are you, Lord? Do you know Jesus? Do you know who he is? Many people sadly accept as truth what they believe Jesus to be without really knowing him. It may be that they have parts of it right, but that it's not a full gospel. They believe Jesus perhaps to be this sort of magical, fix everything, fill this hole inside your heart and you'll never have any problems again type of genie that exists out there. Right? You know this, you've encountered this, you've seen this, maybe you believed it for a time for yourself as well. That you fundamentally misunderstood, at least in the wholeness, in the fullness of who Jesus really is. And Paul rightly asks, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord says, I am Jesus. Consider the power in that statement alone. You see, that's what I want us to understand. It's so easy for us to to read through these passages of Scripture sometimes. Maybe it's a part of our daily Bible reading plan, and we're going to get through the Bible in a year. And by the way, nothing is wrong with that. I want you reading the Bible as much as you possibly can. I want you consuming it. But sometimes it's so easy for us to just read, 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 read. And we read right over things like, I am Jesus, and it just goes right over our heads. And we don't stop to pause and to consider how powerful those three words alone are and what they accomplished in this man's life. Consider that. Three sweeter words have rarely, if ever, been spoken. I am Jesus. You see, we could sit in and we could have a study for the next three hours on those three words. What are the implications of those three words, of him saying, I am Jesus? It's incredible. Do we understand that? Are we praying on a regular basis that the power of the Spirit would help us to understand it? That, Lord, help me to understand the gravity of the text that I'm reading. I am Jesus. And if it's powerful for us, even here, it's so much more powerful for Saul in this moment. The very man who is intent on eradicating Christians and subsequently the entire Christian faith from the earth. The man who who has made it his mission to hate Jesus. And here he's laying on the ground, blinded, and he's hearing, I am Jesus. Now again, most people don't meet Jesus this way, but it doesn't lessen the importance or the gravity of the time when you experienced the knowledge of I am Jesus, when that became true in your own life, when those words became something very personal to you, and what happened when they did? What happened when those words, when the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and is to you, when that became real, what began to happen in your life? Your world changed, did it not? Your world changes. Your belief system begins to transform. Perhaps the things that you had thought were truth all along, you now start to question and wonder, what does all this mean? What have I been buying into? What have I been believing? What have I been supporting? What have I been involved in? Everything here for Saul, everything that he had worked for, all that he had given and sacrificed, he had to have now been questioning, what does it mean? You see, when we encounter Jesus Christ, we need to be prepared for radical things to happen. We should expect that radical things will happen for our plans to change, for our world to transform. We must be ready to surrender to that. And if we do not, then like Paul, we will find that it is hard to kick against the goads. Now when we see this, a lot of times we go, what what is a goad? Did he mean goat? Are you kicking against goats here? What what is he talking about here? You see, a goad was a spiked stick. It was used by a farmer to prod an animal 
that he was leading through the field. Sometimes even there would be plows that they would be using. The ox would be pulling a plow and it would actually be fixed against it. So that when that stubborn animal decided, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. They would start to kick. And then when they did, it would be a very unpleasant experience to kick against that object that would hurt them, that would injure them. Not critically, but enough to make them go, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. And now here, Jesus is saying to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? You see, that very statement right there does give us understanding that Saul had been resisting. That it reinforces my belief that Saul was impacted by that experience with Stephen. That his zeal for persecuting the church was both against the church, but also against that voice that was convicting him inside, trying to silence it, trying to shut it down. This, this thing that was causing him to question everything that he believed in. Here he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Do we have free will? Yes. See, that's the implication here. Do we have a choice? Yes, we do. But does God also work to accomplish his plan? Yes. And he will. And that is what surrender is about. It's about recognizing that the pursuit of our own plan only makes us miserable as we're fighting against the work that God desires to accomplish in our lives. To surrender is to stop the kicking against the goads and to accept with joy the plan and purpose that God has for your life. And so he, in verse 6, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. See, this is the second and very appropriate question that Saul asks. Lord, what do you want me to do? When we come to understand who Jesus is and we surrender, we should naturally ask, what is it that you want me to do? Where do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? Knowing Jesus and doing his will, that should be our aim. That should be our aim, to know Jesus and to do his will, to have an understanding of this is what God is calling me to and to be faithful in that. Saul here was apprehended, confronted in a radical way. And many times, though not as supernatural, we are confronted with significant circumstances, are we not? And it should always be our response in such situations to ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this? How do you want me to proceed? Now, many believe here, of course, and this may not be anything surprising to, to you, that Saul here, that this is his conversion, that this is the Damascus road, that the fact that Saul is responding to the voice of Jesus here with Lord, and he's showing a, a submission, a surrender, that this is that moment when Saul is saved. But there's a little bit of debate about that, because as we'll see here shortly, he has then another encounter with a man named Ananias who lays hands on him and prays for him, and it says that at that point he received the Holy Spirit. What we ultimately know here, and we shouldn't get too caught up in debating when exactly does it happen, is that it happens. That Jesus becomes Lord of his life. And you'll see within Paul's writings throughout the New Testament that he consistently then refers to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands who he is and what he is in his life. Nevertheless, Jesus answers his question, and he says, Arise and go into the city. That was it. That was it. He didn't say, Saul, go into the city, buy this house, get this job, marry this person, have two kids, 
go do this, go do that, go do that. By the end of your life, here's where you'll be and it'll all be fantastic. Though we want that so desperately, do we not? And remember, it wasn't long ago that we were talking about Philip and we were talking about Stephen. And the idea that sometimes when God speaks, he gives us one step, one step. Here, he was given the first step. He's told to go into the city and then I'll tell you what to do from there. And we must remember that as we seek to know Jesus and to know his plan for our lives, that we must be comfortable taking things one step at a time. Walking by faith is taking steps, not knowing where the next one may lead. Is it not? Proverbs 3, 5, and 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It's pretty clear there. You can go ahead and do a word study. It pretty much means all. Right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. You see, we've got to be comfortable with that when God says, go, take a step. That even though it may be in our nature, in our flesh to say, can you give me steps two, three, four, and five? You don't have to give me six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Be just a couple more. Just so I know. I like to prepare. I like to pack the right things. You know, I want to know. No. If he says, you go, you go. We've got to get comfortable with that. Verse 7, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, wouldn't you? Right? This is good. If Peter were there, Peter would be saying all kinds of things, right? Peter would just be talking it up, you know, trying to fill the space. Poor Peter. We love Peter. Hearing a voice, but seeing no one. They were speechless. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. So he's saying, here, now, now what this tells us is that Paul's on the ground, and, and he's got his eyes closed, Okay? This is, he is laying on the ground and he's got his eyes closed because as he stands up, it says he opens his eyes, but he can't see. This was an experience, let me tell you. And he can't see. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Three days. I have to think there's something significant there about that. Three days he had to sit and consider this situation. Now, Paul did not have a choice in this particular situation as far as his sight was concerned. It was gone. He couldn't see anything. Now, it was his choice not to eat or drink. We don't know if he was intentionally fasting or if it was just he was so overwhelmed by the experience, just the thought of eating or drinking anything was just too much. I can't do it. I can't right now. And what we'll learn as a vision comes to a man named Ananias is that Paul is praying during this time. God tells Ananias, you're going to go and you're going to find this man and he's going to be praying so he is sitting here at this time. He can't see, and for three days, he's not eating or drinking, and he's praying, considering the situation, working through his beliefs, reviewing his education, considering the Old Testament verses that he knew so well, perhaps beginning to connect the dots for himself. It is this circumstance and the event that follows that, you know, to me, leads me somewhat to believe that that there is something to this whole conversion situation for Saul. That yes, he has an encounter with Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, but that I believe that he, over the next three days, continues to work this all out. And he counts the cost, Christian. He counts the cost. I think oftentimes that people can flippantly accept Jesus Christ or get saved, if you will, on an emotional high, but they never really count the cost. 
They never consider what it means to follow Jesus Christ. What we will see for Paul is that there was an incredible cost in following Christ. But it was one that he then agreed to and that he never backed down from. You see, he had time to consider these things, time to commit to these things. And we need to learn from that. You know, I'm not against altar calls at all. We do them here. We give people opportunity to respond. But when we do, we always encourage and reinforce and ask that people would share that with us if they've made a decision that whether they they raise their hand and then we can follow up with them to provide discipleship. But also, if that were you, if today you were to raise your hand and say, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I would want to sit down and say, do you fully understand? Do you know what it is that you're committing to? Are you counting the cost? Now, it's not to suggest here that, well, you know, the cost is so great that I really want to discourage you from doing this. But we've got to consider it, do we not? More people need to carefully count the cost before they accept Jesus Christ. And in so doing, if we do that more often, then I think we'll have a whole lot more Pauls running around who are on fire for the Word of God and not caring so much about the things of this world that maybe have now been sacrificed, that maybe they now need to let go of because they're delighting in the fact that I made this commitment. I knew it. I knew that that's what I was going to have to do. I knew there were things in my life that I was going to have to give up, and I delight in it. I'm taking joy in it. I love that those things aren't in my life anymore, rather than struggling with it and going, oh, just let me keep it. And so in verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. I love this. You know, sometimes we can't get a full sense of how the individual reacted exactly. But it seems as if Ananias here is very calm. Jesus says, Ananias. Well, yes, here I am, Lord. Right? I mean, it's, it seems as if we have an individual here who's so in tune with the Spirit that it's, yes, Lord. As if perhaps this has happened times before. And I think that it probably is. I think that what we have here is an individual who's truly led of the Spirit. That when God speaks, they listen. They know, okay, Lord, what's next? What do you have for me? And he wasn't an apostle. He was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. A learner, if you will. Someone who wanted to learn, who wanted to be a student. And here again, I I mentioned earlier that Paul was one of the most damaging forces on Christianity in all of history. And yet he was also the most influential and helpful in advocating for the faith. He went from chief persecutor to chief advocate. And while it was God who saved him, here God chooses to use someone, someone who is simple and obscure, to aid in the work. And this should be such an encouragement to all of us as we consider Stephen and as we consider Philip and now Ananias is that we consistently see here how God is using ordinary people to aid in his plan and his purpose. We should be so excited about that, that God delights in us so much as as his children that he uses us for his work. And so here he picks this man, Ananias, as somebody who was clearly led of the Spirit, and he says, I want to use you. And Ananias says, yes, Lord, here I am, Lord. And it had to have been that this man had had pursued so intently the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was his daily aim that he was seeking after him, that he was one who was ready to be used. And again, that should be an encouragement to each and every one of us that we can be used in similar ways if we are available and ready and open to what God desires to do in our lives. He says, here I am, Lord. In verse 11, so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. 
And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. God gives Ananias clear instructions here for what he is to do. But just because the vision or the call is clear sometimes doesn't mean we want to do it, right? So let's all recognize that as well, that sometimes God speaks to us. God says, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to take this step. And it may be more steps than we were even expecting. Oh, hey, great. He's giving me a little more detail this time. I don't want to do it. Don't want to go. Don't want to go do this. So Ananias answers in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. See, Ananias was no dummy. He understood the implications of this, what he was being called to do. He no doubt considered the risk to his own life as well as to his brothers and sisters in the faith. Like Pastor Bobby spoke on last week with Jonah, sometimes we are called to things that we have no interest in or heart for. Saul was a murderer. He was likely on the mind of every Christian of the age. He was, if you will, the Osama bin Laden of our time. A nation reeling from a terrorist attack, intent on catching the man who was behind and at the source of it all. How many following September 11th felt as their greatest emotion the desire to be the one chosen to go and track down that man and give him the gospel of Jesus Christ, to invite him to accept Jesus, to introduce him to your family, to bring him into your home, to have dinner with him, to to bring him to your brothers and sisters in church in various places and say, here, embrace him. We can start to think about that and we can try and even imagine that, But that's the reality of this situation. That is what Ananias here is being asked to do. What he was confronted with was not just the call of God on his life to do something radical, but here now also he was being called to forgive. Forgiveness. It's incredibly hard at times. Both to forgive and, quite frankly, to receive it in some cases. It's been said that forgiven should be forgiving. But if we're honest, in many ways we're not. Ananias was more than reluctant at first to agree to what God was calling him to, but God made it clear, as always, that there was a purpose to his plan and a plan to his purpose. You know, we can think of individuals, people in history, whose end we neither mourn nor lament. The people who, in our heart of hearts, we think forgiveness is between them and God. They got what they deserve. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that that is the case in many occasion. But here he was called to something radical in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Oh, you had me at suffer. Now I'm on board, right? You mean Saul will suffer? Okay, I'm in now. Some of you may have seen the movie The Princess Bride. Some of you love it, some of you hate it. I think it's an incredibly clever movie. And at one point, they're trying to basically resurrect this young prince or whatever he is, and it's in the name of love. He's, they've got to be together. And the guy who played by Billy Crystal, right, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm not a true love. I'm not all about this stuff. But then they say, oh, you'll get revenge on the king. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. And then he does it, right? You see, sometimes we can be misguided in our motives. And here's the reality. I, 
I don't think that this was Ananias at all. This is just me, right? This is just me, how I can relate to this and go, oh, yeah, okay, and now I know this is how I would feel in my flesh. He's a better man than I, quite frankly, Ananias. Here, so moved by the fact that God was telling him, you've got to go. And he wrestled with this, no doubt. He grappled with this. Saul would become Paul and would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And yes, he would suffer for the sake of the gospel. Remember, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 and following, this is Paul speaking here. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. You see, Paul was going to have to face incredible persecution himself. The one who unleashed such persecution on the church would become the persecuted. And no doubt in those three days that Saul sat blind, hungry, and thirsty, he considered the cost of following Christ such that when he committed, it was truly a covenant that would not be broken. That he would be willing to suffer anything for the one whom he considered Lord of his life. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. You see, that's it right there. Ananias had to have been praying. He had to have been praying the whole journey. What am I going to do when I walk through that door? How am I going to handle this? How could I possibly do this? And as he comes in, he sees Saul sitting there, blind, hungry, thirsty. And he says, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. His eyes were spiritually and physically opened. There was something very visible that happened to him, and Ananias calls him brother. There was a work done in Ananias' heart, and he was able to pray with this man, who very well may have even killed some of Ananias' own family or friends. This isn't something to be taken lightly, but to be marveled at. It's the evidence of the power of the gospel and the grace and the mercy that we know through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? And so when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. He spent some days there. He probably had to work to build some relationships. We'll learn in verse 26 that the disciples, when he goes to Jerusalem, they didn't want to receive him. They were afraid of him. This wasn't an easy thing. And we'll start to close here for today. Something I want you to think about here too is that, and we'll touch on this next week, is that a lot of times we think, okay, Saul, he's good to go now. He's going to go and he's going to change the world. What actually happens here is that Saul goes out to the desert. There's actually a period of three years before he comes back into Damascus. And then from there, they go to Jerusalem 
And they seek to take his life there. The disciples, once they accept him, you know, they start to figure all these things out. And the Jews, they seek his life. And so the disciples, they take him down and they send him back to Tarsus and say, go, you can spare your life. And do you know how long he goes to Tarsus for? Depending on who you ask, it's somewhere between eight and 10 years. In fact, most scholars believe that it was 12 to 15 years before Paul went out on his first missionary journey. You don't think he continually counted? The cost? We believe that he was married, that he had two sons, that his wife likely left him as well as another son, ones to be debated. We've already read the accounts of the things that he faced, but he counted the cost, and he was committed to following Jesus Christ. How far will you go? How long will you wait? How much will you endure Jumping ahead quickly to verse 31, it says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. You see, that's a description of the church after these events related to Saul's conversion start to unfold. Will you walk in the fear of the Lord and depend on the comfort of the Holy Spirit and not on the comforts of this world? Have you sat and deeply considered the cost of following Christ and decided to exchange the cares of this world, the comforts of this life, for the the blessings of following Christ? Is that you today? If so, praise God. But if not, then you've got a decision to make. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.